Our scripture lesson this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Listen now to God's word. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child and uh, with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary his mother and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. You may be seated. And before we pray, I just want to call your attention to this beautiful quilted piece of art that Jane Pitts Hubbard uh, made and gave to Connie and me for Christmas. It was just too gorgeous not to share with you this morning, given uh, the season of the year. Uh, if, uh, if you'd like a closer look of it, come up uh, at the end of service. Her quilting on it is amazing. But it portrays, of course, the visit of the Magi, or the wise men, to worship the Christ child. And I'd also like to just uh, recognize the fact that uh, this is a rare occurrence Uh, I don't know how many years it's been since I've had both of my sons, their wives, and the grandsons all in worship together. Uh, John's taken the Sunday off from Embrace, so we're glad to have you all. And then uh, my daughter-in-law, Laura Garrison Gallagher, her parents and her brother and sister and their spouses are here. So they're filling up a whole row. Actually, it looks like two rows. You go. Fantastic. 
Um, but we're really uh, blessed to have you all here. And I know there are other, Sarah's uh, family is here, her children, spouses, grandson, and granddaughter. And we're glad to have you all here as well. Uh, let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we pray now in the strong and mighty name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit would come and open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. Come, Holy Spirit, come, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning's gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 2 is traditionally read right after Christmas. It is the final scene of the Nativity. Our Christmas card mashups of the Nativity story rarely get it right. Um, it usually goes something like this. Mary gives birth to Jesus, lays him in a manger. The angels tell the shepherds. They run to Bethlehem. And then a short while later, the wise men show up. And that's the end of the story. But in reality, the Magi arrive much later. In fact, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus are not living in a stable, which uh, in that day was probably a limestone cave. There are many of them in that area around Bethlehem. I've, I've actually worshipped inside of one. They are used for shelter by shepherds to keep their flocks safe at night. But they were not living in a cave, in a stable any longer. They were in a house, Matthew 2.11 says. Jesus was probably at least a year old, given the fact that in verse 16, Herod says that, that he has sent uh, soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all of the baby boys two years and younger in the town and surrounding areas. Given the, the small size of the town, uh, scholars believe that this could have been as many as 20 or 30 children. We, we can only imagine the horror against the backdrop of, of this wonderful gift to the world and the birth of Jesus, there's this horrible incident, this murderous rage by King Herod. Joseph and his family and the baby Jesus especially could have been victims of, of Herod's rage, but an angel warned them to flee to Egypt. Yes, Joseph... Mary and Jesus were refugees. They were refugees and lived in Egypt until the danger passed. When we, when we visited uh, Egypt, um, it's been three years ago with a group from this church and others from our annual conference, I was amazed at how many religious sites there are in Cairo that venerate places where tradition says Jesus and his family lived or visited during this time uh, of exile in Egypt. After King Herod died, which was probably a year or two later, the scripture says that uh, an angel appeared to Joseph yet again. He returned to Israel, but when he heard that Herod's son was now the king, he decided they needed to go back to Nazareth. In Galilee. The visitation of the Magi may seem fanciful, uh, even mythical to some people today, but really there are, there are good reasons to believe this is historically true. There are various ancient sources 
that ascribe great influence to Magi in the centuries preceding the birth of Jesus and even afterwards. We, we don't know their names. Tradition gives them names that are often cited in plays and the like and in films. Uh, we don't know if they actually rode camels, even though Isaiah 60 refers to camels. Uh, and we certainly don't know if they wore crowns. But they were Gentiles. Just as the shepherds at the lowest class on the bottom of, of the status scale in Israel, just as shepherds, these low class shepherds were invited as the first guest to the manger, so Gentiles were led by the star, by the glory of God to Bethlehem to visit the Christ child. Uh, their inclusion is clearly a sign that God's plan of salvation was not just for the Jews. It included the likes of us, us Gentiles. A Greek historian of the period describes the, Ma the Magi as a priestly class in ancient Babylon and also in Persia. Um, anybody know where Persia is today? Iran. What about Babylon? Iraq. So two countries that are very much in the news almost every single week were, were likely the homeland of these magi who came to Bethlehem. Their religion was a mixture of both science and superstition. They were astronomers. They studied the heavens. They were astrologers. They were sorcerers who did magic and interpreters of dreams. In fact, our word magic comes from this word magi. The Old Testament prophet Daniel, according to chapter 2, verse 48 of Daniel in the Old Testament, uh, he was chief of the magi, we are told, promoted even though he was a Jew to this place of influence in this pagan land. Now this occurred about 500 years before the birth of Jesus during the Jewish exile in Babylon. The Magi were most certainly not kings, even though we sang that just a few minutes ago. Uh, but they were king makers. They were very influential, very powerful, politically speaking, since no Persian could become king unless he had first mastered the wisdom of the Magi. And Matthew's gospel tells us that the, Mesh, the Magi followed a star, whatever it may have been, a celestial event, uh, a comet, a supernova, uh, uh, perhaps a, a coordination of, of more than one heavenly body, or maybe it was simply a miracle, a supernatural manifestation of the glory of God. But they followed this light to within nine miles of, of Bethlehem. And that is the city of Jerusalem. And when they entered Jerusalem, their caravan, which likely would have been very, very large. And again, remember, it doesn't say in the scripture there were three magi, three wise men. Uh, we have, we've equated the three gifts with three wise men. There could have been a dozen or more. And their caravan would have been quite large with all of their servants and support staff carrying their tents and their food and their treasures with them. They would have made quite an entrance into the city, and as a result of that, people were, were talking, and they were able to get an audience 
with King Herod the Great. Herod the Great um, considered himself to be the king of the Jews, even though he was an Edomian. He was not a Jew. Uh, He was deeply disturbed, the scripture says here, by this claim that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem. At this point in his life, Herod was probably in his late 60s. He didn't have long to live. Uh, He probably had gonorrhea. He had chronic kidney failure, uh, scholars believe, as well as several other illnesses. He had lived a very decadent, immoral life. And so here he is nearing the end of his life, and in his paranoia and his mental illness, he begins to have fear in his heart about what this might mean for his reign and rule, perhaps for himself, but also for his family, for his heirs. History tells us that uh, Herod had a very big ego. He called himself Herod the Great. There were other Herods, but he was Herod the Great. And he was determined to make Israel great again. And over a 40-year period, he did just that. No one accomplished more than Herod the Great. He was a tremendous builder. And I have visited every one of the ruins of of his construction projects, which date back over 2,000 years. I have walked through Masada, as some of you have. This amazing fortress and palace in the Judean wilderness that's on the top of a a mountainous plateau that overlooks the Dead Sea. I have been to the Herodium where Herod had this hilltop mansion and fortress very near Bethlehem. He could see Bethlehem and you could see the Herodium for miles around. Uh, I picked up a piece of white marble in the water Uh, in the shallow water of the Mediterranean Sea at Caesarea by the sea when I was there in 1999. And and, uh, I asked my God about it, and he said, well, that, that most certainly is a relic of King Herod's palace. He built a palace for himself that extended out into the Mediterranean. They say it was magnificent. He built another palace for his family. He built an arena there that has been restored where they have concerts, where we actually have devotion and worship when we make pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I've been there a number of times. And he built, uh, he built a hippodrome where there were chariot races. Uh, Caesarea was an amazing port city. Uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And there is uh, at uh, Caesarea an aqueduct that carried fresh water from mountain streams many miles away. I've stood on top of that aqueduct that is 2,000 years old. And finally, finally, on, on four separate occasions, I have placed my hand on the very stones that were laid many years prior to the birth of Jesus. Uh, the retaining wall, the western wall of the temple complex that Herod the Great built for the Jews. Although it was completely destroyed except for that one wall in AD 70 by the Romans. Jewish historian Josephus writes that Herod was capable, crafty, and cruel. He had his favorite wife assassinated. He also took his wife's brother down to the Jordan River for a swim party and then had the soldiers drown him. He killed his mother-in-law. 
three of his sons, one of them only five days before Herod passed away. When Herod was dying from his uh, many diseases, he told his sister, I want you to gather all of the leaders throughout Israel into an arena. And after word of my death has come, I want them all murdered so that the entire nation will be in tears. They'll be weeping and grieving rather than celebrating my death. Some have questioned the believability of Herod's slaughter of Bethlehem's baby boys, but it is entirely consistent with the man's behavior during the latter years, especially of his reign in Israel. Uh, He was paranoid and obsessed with power. He was a wicked man. Now, normally... When, when we talk about the wicked, we think about people that are despicable, don't we? I mean, we think about Hitler, Paul Pot of Cambodia. Uh, we think of Saddam Hussein of, of the world's most vicious dictators. We think of mass murderers, serial killers. We, we think of people that commit heinous acts of evil, a depraved person, a hardened criminal. However, in the Bible, listen now, in the Bible, wickedness, wickedness is applied to persons who also disregard justice and righteousness and truth. They are people without honor and virtue. Those two are numbered among the wicked in Scripture. In the eyes of God, they are considered wicked. In Psalm 10, which we read from responsibly earlier in this service, David gives us several traits of what the wicked look like. Listen to this. This is right out of the Scripture. The wicked are proud. Verse 2 of Psalm 10 says, The wicked arrogantly hunt down the poor, for they brag about their evil desires. Verse 3. They succeed in everything they do. They think nothing bad will ever happen to us. We will be free of trouble forever. Verses 5 and 6. The wicked are proud. They're arrogant. The wicked are also foul-mouthed. David says here, they curse the Lord. Verse 3. Verse 7. Their mouths are full of cursing, lies, and threat. The wicked are also abusers of power. Uh, Psalm 10 verse 8 says they are always searching for helpless victims. Verse 9 says they wait to pounce on the helpless like a lion. They capture the helpless. Verse 10, their helpless victims are crushed. They fall beneath the strength of the wicked. Are you getting a picture here? Proud Foul-mouthed abusers of power, they are also rebels against God. Verse 4 says, the wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead. And yet, listen to this, in verse 11, there is an indication of contradiction. While they think God is dead, they also say God isn't watching us. He has closed his eyes and won't even see what we do. The philosopher and atheist Thomas Nagel is very candid about his own struggle with saying there is no God. In a book that he wrote back in the 1990s, he says, I am talking about the fear of religion itself. 
I'm speaking from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and made uneasy. I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent, well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that my belief is right. I hope there is no God, exclamation point. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not rare. And then in his footnote he says, uh, which I think is very insightful, he doubts that there is anyone who genuinely is indifferent as to whether there is a God. And we can admire his honesty and, and this hint of vulnerability here. And so why is this account been a preserver for us in the gospel?